welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramids. On today's episode, we'll have a review of the Premier League action, including a controversial game at St James's Park between Newcastle and Arsenal. We'll preview Monday night football with Spurs hosting Chelsea. We'll touch on the Ballon d'Or results and if it went to the right man. We'll look at the main results from the Championship, including the Pyramid Pod Cup holder Southampton, leaving it late at Millwall, and take a look at the key upsets from the FA Cup. And Laura will talk us through Yeovil's local midweek derby game tomorrow night at Torquay. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Lawrence and Tom Gallagher. Boys, we'll start at St. James's Park. Uh, Laura, come to you. Big win for Newcastle, but a bit of a controversial goal. Just first thoughts on if you thought it was a goal. And secondly, just the overall VAR process. Oh, that's a tough start. Yeah, I, I I thought it was a goal. Um in real, t- this is this is how I saw it from start to finish. That incident in real time, I thought the ball had gone out. I was we were watching it down the down the pub actually, and as soon as Willett went to retrieve, I said that's gone out straight away. So anything from, that happened from there, I thought would be um, deemed irrelevant. But later on in the move, obviously we get the is it a foul? Is it not? And is it offside? Is it not? I didn't think it was a foul. I think it's one of those where. I actually agreed with Gary Neville's description of it, where Gabriel was kind of leaning forward and looking to throw himself to the floor to gain a foul, which players can do now that VAR are here because he knows there'll be hands somewhere near him and on on a freeze frame, it'll probably look like a foul and it just hasn't gone his way. And then I didn't think it was offside, A, because you can't really see where the ball comes off of the man and B, I think the ball was rolling backwards anyway. So I don't think it was offside and I don't think it was a foul. I did personally, from the naked eye, think it went out. However... If VAR have looked at it and they can't tell us 100% that it did go out, I think they did the right thing in staying with the on-field decision, which was obviously that it stayed in. So I thought there were three incidents there that obviously all were kind of 50-50, but they didn't find enough reason to overturn any of them. So I think they did the right thing, letting it stand, because I think we give VAR enough stick for looking for reasons to rule out goals. And on this occasion, they didn't. There were three incidences where they probably could have easily done it, and they didn't. And that's probably where quite a lot of Arteta's frustration came from, which I know we'll come on to later. In terms of the game itself, I think it's a big pat on the back for Eddie Howe, because that's two games this week against Man United and Arsenal, where he hasn't had a full fettle. He hasn't had a um, a full tank of gas, if you like. They miss it. They're still missing Sven Botman. No Tonali, no Isaac. Harvey Barnes is injured as well, and they're still getting these results against big sides. So we're quite quick to say on here that Eddie Howe will probably be under pressure if he comes under a bad run of form, but it doesn't really happen under him because he's such a good manager. And the fact that they can make three, four, five changes to what was probably his ideal first eleven and still come out with two wins in a week over the likes of Man United and Arsenal says everything you need to know. So brilliant result for Newcastle. And my personal opinion is the goal should stood, should should have stood, and that was. Nice to see. Tomo, bring you in. A, just whether you agree with uh, Loro on the goal there, but just then also some of the wider VAR decisions, so a couple of like potential red card uh, incidents in the game as well. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty on board with Loro, to be honest. I do think the goal should have stood. I think, the um, for me, it wasn't an offside, um, and they, they said that it, they had no proof to say it was um, offside, so they couldn't give it. And the same with the when the ball goes out of play, they didn't have enough evidence to to show that it did go out of play. So you can't then give it. And then the only one for me that was 50-50 was the foul. 
um, sort of Jolinton. It does look like he push, pushes Gabriel, um, but I do kind of agree with Gary Neville and Lauren, the fact that Gabriel did did sort of sort of lean into it, if you know what I mean. So it almost like um, he tried to win the foul as opposed to um, a foul happened upon him. So for me, I don't really understand why Arteta has come out after the game and gone so nuts because that one's a 50-50. You've got 50% of the population saying it's a foul, 50% say it's not. So it's a subjective one. So for whichever way it goes, you can't argue because VAR is not, it's not there to referee 50-50 decisions. It's there to it's there to referee the big mistake. So it's not a mistake either way. Um, go on. One question for you, Tomo. So um, I've heard a lot of people saying that you can't, there's not enough evidence to overturn the decision. So you've got to stay with the on-field decision. But do you think VAR is now influencing referees to not make on-field decisions and stop the game? And because they've got VAR to rely on in the background, so you're going to see more instances of potential goals that should be rolled out or decisions that should have been made not being made because the referees in the back of their mind thinking, I'll let play on, I'll give the goal and then see if there's any reason for them to rule it out. And then VAR saying there's not enough clear evidence. Whereas if they didn't have VAR, the linesman might have been like, that looked out to me, I'm going to give it on my yeah. gut feel. Or yeah. that is a that looks like a push and I'm going to give the push. Yeah, I agree with you, but what we're what you're saying is, if there's not enough ever like clear and obvious evidence that they made a mistake, then for me it's a fifty fifty decision either way. And I know what you're saying that they're sort of almost relying a little bit on the VARs to come in and, and correct a mistake if they do make an obvious one. Um, but I mean, you'd rather more goals in a game, wouldn't you? So yeah, that's um, true. Um, the only thing I, what I will say about about Arteta's rant after the game is I've I think it's inadvertently played out to be an absolute masterclass for him because I thought Arsenal were crap on the day. Um I actually thought um they were quite good for the first 15 to 20 minutes and they they really quietened that St James's crowd that we spoke about in the in the previous podcast that's such an advantage for Newcastle. However um as soon as Kai Havertz did what he does and that's another subjective one. I didn't think that was a red card. I thought it was just um, a, a bad ta- like a, a bad yellow card tackle. Um, and as soon as that happens, that reminds me a little bit of the Granite Xhaka, Trent Alexander falling out last year at Anfield, where where Arsenal was sort of controlling the game and then they sort of lose their heads for a split second and it gets the crowd going and it gets the the other team going. And um, and then from that point on, I thought Newcastle did a great job. I think Eddie Howe's turned Newcastle into sort of Atletico Madrid 2.0, which is a far cry from his Bournemouth days where he was like beautiful football, but potentially didn't have the sort of the backbone to get get things done. Whereas this Newcastle team seemed, seemed like the complete opposite to that. Um, but yeah, like, like I said at the start, I don't think anyone is now talking about how poor Arsenal played. And I don't think anyone's talking about um, David Rea making another mistake because let's be honest, that was a bad error for the goal. Even if it, even if you want to say it shouldn't have stood, it's a bad error from him. And that sort of shines a spotlight once again on the Ramsdale Rea argument um, or debate that we've, we've had all season. 
Yeah, and you you said there, Tomo, that you didn't think the Havertz one was uh, a red card. What do you think to the Bruno uh, Gamara's one? Do you think that's a, a dirty one off the ball and should be sent off for that? No, not at all. No, when they slow it down and they like they do with everything, it looks bad. But if you, I'm sure if you watched it normally, he's just clipped him with his sort of his forearm. It's not, it's not an elbow. If it was an elbow, then potentially. But when they slow it down, it always looks worse than it is. Um, and I actually thought his because he got booked in a second half, didn't he, for pushing, um, a, pushing an Arsenal player in the chest. And everyone was going, well, he's lucky to still be on the pitch because he should have got booked for the forearm. And I just thought, well, that wasn't a booking either. It's just like, they're just booking, they're getting things. I think where people start to get a bit dismayed with it is like inconsistencies of other people will get sent off for raising their arms or hands at all. Um, You know, not not to sort of bleat on about United, but you have like Casemiro last year sent off any where he's sort of like got his hands round Will Hughes is sort of scruff of his neck, but slowed down, looks like he's throttling him and it's a straight red. But, I think consistency is killing but, people. And I, I agree with you. And, and Rodri was the same, wasn't it, against Forrest? Yeah. But the reality of it is, just because I, like just because those decisions are happening, I think those decisions were wrong. So just because they're happening, I don't think every incident like that should result in a red card. Like two wrongs don't make a right, in my opinion. And Yeah. Just because Casemiro's wrongly got sent off, I don't think Bruno should wrongly get sent off here. Yeah, valid point. And then, Laurie, just before we move on, Tomo touched on kind of Arteta's rant, saying a bit of a uh, masterstroke in the end for Arsenal. Just your your views on what he had to say and, and the kind of fallout from it since. Well, I think uh, if it was a masterstroke, and I know Tegel thinks this, but it was it's probably an unintentional one because... I think the outburst of emotion from Arteta stemmed from obviously losing what was actually a very important game. And you're right, no one is speaking about it. But the game turned out to be more of a um, game of attrition rather than a uh, a game of quality, if you like. And Arsenal, probably a season and a half and before, you, you'd expect them to lose that game every, every day of the week. The problem is, over the last 18 months or so under Arteta, we've become accustomed to them actually coming away with something from those types of games. And it didn't happen. And I said last week on the pod that this would be quite a good measure as to where they are in terms of proper title credentials. Not saying they're out of it because they've lost, but I think Arteta knows that was quite a bad one. Okay, they didn't have Jesus and they didn't have Odegaard, but Newcastle had probably more injuries and absentees than they did. And that's just spilled over into a massive head loss that's been doubled down on by the club. But for me, ironically, I think that's probably the best use of VAR I've seen this season. I don't think they got anything wrong personally. And if it, like if that ball was out or in, we don't know. If it was a 50-50, they left it. They weren't sending people off for the sake of it. And that's what we want to see. So we can, I want VAR scrapped, but when it works well, like I think it did at the weekend, we have to praise it and say they did a good job. But can, can I just say that even though you are right, Lauro, and even though I do think they got the decision right in the end, I thought it, like for the fan, it ruins the spectacle. And I, yeah. I'm, I was sat there watching the game going, oh, they're trying to disallow. This is awful. It takes four or five minutes to to make the decision. And the real, th- those four or five minutes have completely almost sucked the life out of any enjoyment you have watching this game. Whereas, obviously, the on-field referees give the decision. If VAR wasn't there, it would have been, it would have just been so much better like to watch as a fan. 
Yeah, and I agree, and I want VAR scrapped. I agree with absolutely everything you said, and it does. It takes too much time at the game. But if VAR's here, they do need to take the time to make sure they get the call right. Otherwise, we see what happened at Spurs a few weeks ago. So judging it whilst it's here, that was one of the best I've seen it used. But yeah, I, I, exactly right. Every decision they're trying to send someone off normally, every decision they're taking five minutes and you're thinking they're definitely going to disallow it because they're looking for every which way to do so. I agree. So we're on the same page there. But I just thought they got it right as far as right as far right as VAR can go on Saturday in that game. And I don't think I'll tell... Uh, one, just quick, one, one other point. In his big rant after the game... Someone was trying to, one of the reporters or, or whoever asking the questions in the press conference kept on saying to him, specifically, Mikhail, which bit did you not like? Which bit did you think should have ruled out the goal? And he kept on saying at least two out of three. At least two out of three. He didn't want to specify which one he thought was wrong. And that, to me, made it sound like he thought, well, there are three reasons to cancel it out there. By law of averages, they should have given one, rather than being able to say the ball was out. Or rather than being able to say, no, that was definitely a foul. He didn't want to hang his coat on any one of them just in case someone could come back and disprove, no, it wasn't a foul, no, it wasn't offside, no, it wasn't out. He just kept on saying it was definitely two out of three of them. So I think that's another reason he got so angry. He thought, well, for God's sake, every other time there's normally one reason and they disallow it. We had three and the goal still stood. And I think that's why he felt sick in his own words. Yeah, VAR needs to get to the stage, doesn't it, where as much as automated as possible. So, like, we spoke about international games before, haven't we, in tournaments. So, like, ball's gone out of play because it comes to the bird-eye view and here is the ball out of play, not just Richard Keyes and Andy Gray retrospectively saying it was in. Um, and then offside, again, automated, you have the cartoon with the line and then it shows the body part that's through it. It's like VAR needs to be kind of fouls, doesn't it? That needs yeah. to be the decisions that they're there to make you've got to get automated if the technology exists in the biggest league in the world with the biggest budget with the biggest players um that needs to come in really fast if VARs to continue yeah when it's quick and clinical like it was in the world cup a you almost accept it more because you think oh that's technology a bit like goal line technology yeah that was definitely over the line yeah that was definitely offside and like Tigo just alluded to it doesn't take four or five minutes out of the game it's either offside or it's not so the more they can do that, the better it's going to be. And it sounds like VAR's not going anywhere. So we need to move towards that as quickly as possible. I guess with goal line technology, there must be something that's on the goalposts, which are sensors for that. It's got to be some sort of technology that can be on like the corner flags or something like that, that run through to the post for the... So it will be like a little chip in the ball. Yeah. That's what's that's it's going to come in. I don't know how long it's going to take, but and I think we we spoke about before, haven't we, about the semi-automated offsides? They'll be coming in at the start of next season, so hopefully that will clear those offside ones up. Um, and then yeah, and like you say, the bird's eye chip in the ball that will help with the um, the balls coming out of play because United had one, didn't they, against Brighton when Rashford um, set up Hoyland and that goal got ruled out when it sort of looked similar to that Murphy one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, need need some changes there because it just takes away from big wins for sides, doesn't it? I'm sure Newcastle don't really care too much, but retrospectively, we're not talking about, or people aren't talking too much about Newcastle going and doing an absolute job on Arsenal and Anthony Gordon being in electric form. It's all about, did the refs get it right? So uh, yeah, something needs to change there, but we can talk about that till we're blue in the face. We'll move on, boys. So um, one sort of early title pace setter Arsenal uh, drop points and then uh, Sunday afternoon another one did so Tomo Luton won Liverpool won uh, looked for a while like Luton would get all three points but uh, Diaz 
to the rescue for that one. But uh, yeah, just want to touch on uh, on Nunez's day with you and uh, some of the chances that he missed. Yeah, yeah. I'm, he must be an absolute head fuck to watch as a Liverpool fan because he's he had one where he was outside of the box and I thought, that's a great effort. He looks like he's got his eye in now. And then he missed another sitter in the first half. And then that one in the second half where Mo Salah inadvertently heads it towards him. And I, I'm not sure if they've proved or disproved whether whether Mo Salah was an off, in an offside position. So I don't know whether it would have stood or not. But to, to not only miss from two yards out when it's just sitting up perfectly just to place it into the net, but I think he's missed it sort of twice over. So I think, you know, that Nico Jackson meme that you were talking about, Loro, um, yeah. at the start of the season where they they make the goal bigger and bigger and bigger. I actually think if they make the goal twice as big, he still misses. It's that bad. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like he, he, he still, for me, Nunes, he still, for me, has got something. I just think he quite often has these games where you're just like, what on earth has happened? Um but yeah, I was, I, do you know what? I was really impressed on the game itself. I was actually really impressed with Luton. I know I spoke um, on Thursday's pod and I said I said that I thought Luton might do it. I just fancy Luton to get a, a good win against a good Premier League team at some point at Kenilworth Road. And it, it did have that kind of FA Cup third round feel, feel to it where the underdogs um, sort of do everything they can to fight and scrap for everything and the goalkeeper had a good game. Um, I thought Ross Barkley had a great game against Liverpool, which is sort of a little bit of um, a storyline to that, obviously being a former Everton player. Um, and then actually, I thought their winners, that Issa Kabora, I thought was dangerous all game. Um, that Ogbené made Trent Alexander look stupid a couple of times. Um, so it did kind of look dangerous on the break and he obviously got the goal um, through Tayef Chong on that. But... I wouldn't panic too much if I was a Liverpool fan. Like they had an XG of three point zero one, so we'll call it three. And like at the end of the day, on any other sort of game, they would have won that comfortably if Darwin Nunes had a shooting boots on. Yeah, Lauro, um, I've obviously been quite scathing of Luton, predicting them to go down um, on probably the well, I think I've said before the least points that a Prem side ever gets, but they're probably getting quite close to that now. Um, were you impressed with them and what, what's your kind of thoughts in taking stock sort of 11 games in for the season for them? They'll probably be about as high into the table as they could hope to be. Um, quite often with these, no disrespect, but smaller Premier League sides, they seem to come out of their shell a little bit more against the big teams. And you were right, Tigo, it did have a bit of an FA Cup feel and there's a little bit more hysteria around the place. And you feel like they get an extra sort of man on the field metaphorically from the crowd when they're playing a Liverpool. Whereas when they had Burnley at home, who have only won game all season, they lost 2-1. Do you know what I mean? They can't get themselves up for it as much, or maybe they, they can't make up for their lack of quality as much as they do against the likes of Liverpool. But I agree with Tigo. I thought um, Chong, Ogbeni, Barkley in particular were fantastic. And uh, Gabe Osho as well. He was playing for Yeovil three years ago. We had him on loan from um, well from Luton when Nathan Jones was in charge, and he's obviously got himself and the team and stayed in there. And I thought he was a, a beast at the back. And I mean, I don't know how they work this out, but fantasy football, uh, sorry, fantasy fantasy Premier League have given Alison Becker all three bonus points, so they must have rated Luton as well if he had enough work to do to to um, 
to get the three bonus points, even though he conceded. But obviously also big up Luis Diaz, who's flown back, I guess, from Colombia this week to nod in a very important equaliser for Liverpool. Because if you're not going to win a game like that, it's uh, it's good to see them get something out of it and, and remain up there in, in the title race and keep their unbeaten form going. So, yeah, it was quite a good game to watch, wasn't it? I thought Luton were good. I thought Liverpool were wasteful. Nunes must have had about 10 chances. Every time I looked up, he was having a shot. Um, it's just one of those days where it wasn't to be, but uh, probably a fair result all round one all. Murph, can I just quickly quickly say on Luton's goal as well, in the um, in the spirit of slagging off VAR, um, like we will quite often tonight, um, obviously Luton score, don't they? And it's an absolute brilliant moment. And for the next minute, minute and a half, they're checking the handball in the build-up to the goal from the other end. And for me... That's another example of what it takes away from the joy and the um, sort of the moment of Luton going ahead. I know it kind of potentially means that um, Luton fans in the grounds get two moments of happiness because one, the first moment is obviously the goal itself celebrating. And then the second moment they're celebrating the sort of the VAR says it's a fair goal and we move on. But I just think, for me, watching as a neutral, it completely takes away the enjoyment. Yeah, no, completely agree with you. I also, I get that second moment of joy, but um, sometimes it's a bit forced, isn't it? Like when like the referee blows his whistle and you check and then they score and then all the players run over to the guy who's scored it and sort of push him towards the corner flag to go and celebrate. It's not raw emotion, is it? Like scoring a goal and getting back up off the deck and running to your fans is like pure passion and elation. That's kind of like, uh, you got to kind of almost fake it a bit, your happiness. By that time, you trotted back to the halfway line or stood around the referee waiting for him to make a decision. So it does ruin that part um, completely. But yeah, big, big point for Luton. And they can obviously take some confidence into their next Premier League fixture, which is uh, at Old Trafford. So uh, yeah, three o'clock on Saturday, no doubt they will uh, go and get something against United. We will briefly touch on United, uh, Tomo. So uh, Bruno Fernandes popped up 91st minute, left it late for an important three points um, against Fulham for Ten Hag and United. Uh, I managed to watch the game because didn't have football uh, myself with it being rained off, but United looked pretty poor again in large spells. Yeah, we looked terrible in, in you say large spells, actually the whole game. Um I thought Anthony's performance was a sackable offence. Um, <laughs> gem- generally, I, and I'm, I was absolutely shocked that he came out for the second half and uh, he, en- he got dragged after 60 minutes. But And I actually think he was booed by the United... He was that bad, he got booed by the United fans who are notoriously um, good with their players and they don't... They, they rarely boo, to be honest. Um, just a quick shout-out, I suppose, for Harry Maguire again. He, yeah. he went down after about 30 seconds with a head injury. And to be honest, it looked like he probably should have gone off or someone should have forced his hand and took him off because he definitely looked not quite at it or potentially concussed. Um, but I thought he was great again. He was heading away. And to be honest, the only reason why we didn't lose that game um, like we did against City and against Newcastle was because Fulham were poor themselves. Um but yeah, look, we won the game. It wasn't really that enjoyable. 
Um, but I suppose we move on to Copenhagen. It's an important win for Ten Hag because it sort of a stay of t- execution. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying we turned the corner or anything like that. I thought it was as equally as bad as the Newcastle game, and I thought it was equally as bad as the City game. I just thought Fulham were bad as well. Yeah, two two sides there who can't put the ball in the back of the net, can they? Um, so it was always going to be tight. I actually thought it was going to be nil nil, but obviously happy United nicked it. You know, Larry, actually, just... I, I, can I just ask you a couple uh, question, Murph? Because yeah, go on. So I thought um, our biggest problem, Man United, at the minute, I think from midfield is that the three players in midfield cannot take the ball on the half turn when, on the rare occasions, you Harry Maguire's or Lindelof or whoever's playing centre half plays that line-splitting ball where they play it through the midfield into into your midfielder. Every single time that happens, either it goes straight back to the defence or they try and take it on the half-turn. You know how like a, a David Silva, a Bernardo Silva, or even a Phil Foden, they take the ball on the back foot and, in, and Andres Iniesta is probably the best in the world at it ever. Take the ball on the back foot and in the same sort of motion they're running but they're running against the defense and I just don't think United have that player in their team our our best attacking midfielder Bruno Fernandes is just not very good at that no no he's not I do actually think Ericsson can do that but I just don't think he's got the legs to get through big Premier League games anymore there's times where he comes off a bench where United are losing and he starts to get that ball punched into him and he he'll then pick out the next pass correctly and United start actually building an attack which sticks out like a sore thumb because we just don't build attacks at pace like that. But I just don't think he's got the legs for it. I think the biggest issue you've got with United is that they um, needed a midfield rebuild and we've brought Casemiro in, we've brought Eriksen in, we've brought Mason Mount in, we've brought Amrabat in and it looks like we need a midfield rebuild again. Like, does it, like Casemiro... And Varane, to me, look like they're two players who are going to slowly be dwindled out of this side and the club will be looking for their wages off the bill and for them to be going to Saudi Arabia. I think there's something in that Varane thing and him not playing. I'm not buying that he's on the bench and got illness and not coming on. Otherwise, why on earth are you dragging him down to a freezing cold Craven Cottage in November when he's got a, a cold or flu? So I think there's something in that where the club want him gone and I don't think Ten Hag's maybe having him. I think Casemiro's going to go the same way this year. Mount, he's, I touched on last pod, he's brought for 60 mil to be this kind of, I don't know, I guess the second midfielder in the in the pivot alongside a holder to be the presser. He, that doesn't seem to be working out. Amrabat looks okay to me, but he's a lone move. I don't know if that's going to be made permanent. And then you've got McTominay, who has always been kind of branded as a defensive midfielder, but now everyone seems to say he hasn't got the discipline for that role and he's better going forward. So I, ju- I just think United's midfield is back in a place where it's, we need another rebuild where, yeah, look, we're going to play Bruno 10, but sometimes he's having to go out wide right because of our lack of options out there. And we suddenly need two or three more midfielders. And one final thing I will say on that, I was critical of him at times, but I do think we've missed Fred as well in spells this season in games. I really do. I think that he's been, you know, got criticism for being a terrible player, but sometimes in big games where you need energy and legs and a bit of bite, I, I think 8 million as well when we sign him for 50 odd, a completely reckless transfer that for eight mil, I'd rather just have him in the squad. But uh, yeah, that's, that's basically what I think, Tomo, we're going to need to sign two or three new midfielders. Yeah. On Mason Mount, I actually thought he did well when he come on. Um, And he, 
he's had a slow start to his United career. I think we can all agree that. And he's and he's probably had a, a tough 18 months because his last year at Chelsea um, was in and out of injury. And obviously the contract talks um, didn't go as, as he hoped. But I think he'll come good. And I thought he, he looked good on... Um, on Saturday when he came on for the last sort of 15, 20 minutes, he provided, like you say, that we missed with Fred. I think he provided that bit of energy and a bit of um, uh, oomph, for, for lack yeah. of a better word, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I just think with Mount, if he can't get into this midfield free at the minute because he's trusting on the holder, McTominay and Bruno, why on earth is he not playing out? wide when Anthony is absolutely horrendous. I think he's going to be gone. And I, I, I don't know if he played out on the left for Chelsea when he was in that front three, but he did get some goals and assists for Chelsea out wide, didn't it? So I, I'd be playing him there. But again, that's such a strange one. £60 million midfielder. And actually looks like Tenard got the midfielder he wanted for that one because we were linked with him early and just went and got it. It's not like Casemiro where it was like after De Jong all, all summer and then lose a couple of games and we bring in a high-profile name. I think he got the man he wanted. So for him to now... I know he had an injury, but to not be in the squad and sometimes and not getting on the pitch, sitting on the bench unused, there's something going on with that one as well. But um, but yeah, we'll see. Um, Laurie, just on that game, United had the ball in the back of the net early. Um, McTominay uh, scored from, uh, I think Garnacho squared it across, but ended up getting ruled out for VAR. And I saw you put in the message that you didn't want that one ruled out. Just thoughts on that decision? Yeah, I didn't want it ruled out. I was saying just before we come on to Tigo, to be honest, by the letter of the law, it probably should be ruled out. But I don't think in a game of football, that goal should be ruled out. I don't think Maguire's action towards the ball affected the goalkeeper, the defender, or the ball ended up in the back of the net. So I want, in football, that goal to be allowed. But once it goes to VAR, they probably have to rule it out because by the letter of the law, if someone makes an action towards the ball, it should be. So it's not really the decision I've got a problem with there. It's more the rule itself. And we were just saying how every so every time something happens, they'll change the rule a little bit to cover that one and then it will affect something else. And it's just an endless journey of um of, of trying to correct the system that I wish we just had no video assistant referee over whatsoever. But is what it is. But I do think I think the Tomine's are on a positive note for United. I think he's a bit of a problem at the minute. I think he's a, a, he's probably almost threatening player, I think, every time I watch you. Um, certainly in the last probably three or four weeks and I like him in the team I like seeing him a little bit further before I know he's playing sort of in the middle and with maybe a little bit more license to go and attack I think he's maybe a bit of a forward thinking player I always remember him scoring a brace in the first five minutes against us um, in the league a couple of years ago and he, you know I think he was likened to Zinedine Zidane by Phil Hay the Leeds top correspondent so there's definitely a player in him so on McTominay that- on that on that McTominay goal, just quickly, um, I do agree with you. I like by the letter of the law, it probably should be ruled out. Um, but that's another example of how so even when VAR gets the right decision, it's taken away the enjoyment of the game because it took about five minutes for that decision to be made. And for me, if anything if anything takes five minutes for a decision to be made, then it's not clear and obvious. Um yeah. but so even when they're they're interfering and getting the decision right. They're they're turning fans away from the game as a whole because because the process is wrong. Do you yeah, know what I mean? it, it comes down to the fact that we as fans would probably choose the euphoria and the 
uh, momentum and the spontaneity of the game over getting every single decision right, yeah. wouldn't we? Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. And that's why none of us want fucking VAR, but it's here now. And also, the VAR really, because they seem to, you know, they get slandered either way on decisions that they make, whether it be right or wrong. So Arsenal fans hated the VAR decision there. If one of, if it had gone the other way, Newcastle fans would have been like, how on earth can you call that offside? The only decisions that everyone kind of agrees with is absolute clearing obvious errors, which maybe if VAR wasn't there, the referees wouldn't make those mistakes because they wouldn't just let the game play out. So these kind of 50-50 ones, you don't always get your way anyway because VAR doesn't get it right. So that just goes back to rubber the green, which is where you get that, oh, watch match of the day. Oh, we've got away with one there. That was a hint of offside there, wasn't it? But class or, oh, that was shit. That would have been given, that should have been offside. But they say the VAR is not getting enough right or people aren't agreeing in complete unity about the decisions that they're making. So just get rid. Um, but yeah, not something that we're uh, we're going to solve here. Another game, uh, boys, just to touch on, um, we were asked last week, weren't we, to do a segment on Villa and how well they're doing and how they're flying and um, the pods maybe killed them a bit because, Laurie, they were the first game on Super Sunday yesterday and lost uh, 2-0 against Forest. And I think, again, by the group chat, you were impressed with Forest display. Yeah, they, they just they were playing like prime Brazil. I do, you, honestly, it was like, I don't blame Aston Villa for losing that football match because Forrest were like wave after wave of just positivity and driving forward and not taking no for an answer. And sometimes on the right day, that can happen at any big football ground. The fans were behind them. They were up for it. I don't know if that's classed as a little bit of a derby. And uh, yeah, Forrest are brilliant. But I always think when I watch Forrest, like that is the least team in the Premier League of, that I could name you a starting eleven. I don't know who half of their players are. They're different every single week. Like uh, some of the players yesterday, I've just had to get the team up in front. I can't even read some of their names, but I certainly haven't heard of a lot of them. The highest rated player was actually Harry Toffolo, um, who's had a really good EFL career. So it's good to see him doing well. But it was just one of those where sometimes home advantage means something. And it certainly did yesterday. And it's good to see Steve Cooper pick up three points because Tomo highlighted last week, they'd been on a sneaky bad run. And uh, when you're on a sneaky bad run, like Brentford were on a couple of weeks ago and now Forest, you need a big result, normally at home, just to turn the t- tide a little bit. So good three points for them. And it, for Villa, it's just one of those. And that's why they're not title contenders. They're doing everything they can to stay a European team and maybe get into the Champions League. That's their level and that's fine. For- Forest's first win since the start of September coincides with Yi's first start for over four weeks. And... Has he been out injured or just... Yeah, he's been out injured, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And he come off, didn't he, I think, after 60 minutes this game because obviously he's obviously not fully fit. But Such a handful. Yeah, and it goes to show that when you've got your best striker on the pitch, um, everyone looks better, don't they? And um, what I will say, because obviously we're going to touch on the Ballon d'Or in a minute, um, the best goalkeeper in the world, Emmy Martinez, had an absolute stinker, didn't he, for that second goal? Um, um, because it was nice to see. Yeah, it is quite nice to see. To be fair, because you know he's a bit of a show pony, really. Or I uh, know. Do you remember when United missed that pen- penalty late against him, and he turned and kind of did like the X pack suck it to the Stratford yeah. end? I mean, you got to admire it in a way, but not at the yeah. time. Um, but do you know? Do you know what though? Like with Villa, because obviously we spoke. We spoke. They have been really good this year. But I think at the start of the season, when they 
they lost a couple, I think, quite by by a big margin. We did say that sometimes they play this like like really really high line that when it goes wrong, it looks ridiculous, and it and I think it just went wrong um, against Forest and and obviously uh, yeah so. So Newcastle and Liverpool, wasn't it? The games yeah. you see about, they lost them both heavy and they played that high line. Um, and I think it, it will happen to Villa this season sometimes yeah. just because, and, and obviously, like, sort of, let's say six, seven times out of ten, it works because obviously they're doing really well this season. But when it doesn't work, it looks, it looks complete amateur hour. Yeah. But both of the goals yesterday were actually strikes from about 20, 25 yards. So yeah. I'd rather blame Emmy Martinez. Put on this occasion, like you say, not the most likable geezer, is he? Um, yeah. Particularly after picking up the, the golden gloves or whatever it's called at the Ballon de Shit. So, yeah, <laughs> Emmy's fault yesterday. Yeah, but that that Ola Aina's first goal, side foot, unbelievable. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I, wouldn't blame, I wouldn't blame Martinez for that. If, if say a uh, a Tony Cruz did that, you'd be like, yeah, that's absolutely world class. But it's Ola Aina. Um But yeah, yeah the technique on that is beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, great win for Forrest. Just to round up the rest of the uh, Premier League action, boys. So, uh, Brentford won 3-2 against West Ham and uh, Neil Morpais scored a uh, great moment for for him. Uh, decent game, that, actually. Um, Burnley lost again uh, 2-0 at home to Palace. I know I watched match today. Roy Hodgson said afterwards he was kind of taking that as a lucky win for Palace and Burnley looked good in spells and in that scoreline flattered them but regardless he's walked away with three points a bit smug there Roy saying that it's almost been a bit like old man in Vinnie Company yeah patronising I thought yeah, yeah I thought I'd really patronising I thought if I was Vinnie Company I'd be thinking fucking hell that is the last thing I want to hear normally it's like sort of getting one up on each other this is just Roy going oh yeah Burnley were really good and they'll pick up loads of points if they keep playing like that well in, yeah, a, similar, that. in a similar vein Pep Guardiola said that um, he was really impressed with how Brave Bournemouth won the ball when they were losing 3 0. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and he yeah, does I mean, that, doesn't he? He does that. He says he's so impressed with the team and then goes and dicks them 6 1. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I, I completely agree. That was really patronizing from Roy Hodgson, as you say, Laura, as a Vincent company. It's like, if, if he'd rather been like, yeah, we nicked it, but we were the better side, even though you weren't, that's way better than almost like, rubbing lifting Vincent Company's hat off and rubbing on the head and being like, you'll be yeah. fine, Vincent. Um well quickly, will Vincent be fine, Lauro? Is that I mean that's another loss, isn't it? We spoke about the couple winnable games for them and he's lost both of them. Yeah, I think he will be fine. But I mean look, the only the only way Vincent Company could get sacked this season is if it's an absolute abomination. And to be fair, it is on its way to being that. However, although it's in a different league, this time last year they weren't top of the league. I'm not sure they were even in the playoffs. They'd drawn a lot of games and it was a slow start. And then they went on a run. So it's going to be much harder to go on a run this time, obviously, against much harder opposition. But it is something that he's done before. So I look, I'd be very, very... So even if they went down bottom of the league with no points, they've already seen what Vinny Comedy can do in the in the championship. And, and he's probably the best man to bring him back up. And when Burnley, in the Sean Dyche era, 10, 12 years ago, Burnley came up. Had a bad season, came straight back down, stuck with Sean Dice the whole way through, then went up again, then they were ready, and then they stayed there until, as we know, what, last year, the year before. So I think they should stick with him, and I think they will stick with him, but he does need to get some points. 
yeah, before the international break next week, they go to the Emirates, which looks like no points on paper, but almost a bit of a free hit, isn't it, going there before international break? So, um, well, unless they lose and he gets sacked, then he might not call it a free hit. But yeah, it, I think he does need to pick up a win uh, soon. Uh, Everton drew one all with Brighton. So Brighton left it late. Uh, Ashley Young own goal, Matoma uh, assists there. But Brighton have now only got three points from their last five league games. Um, so struggling a bit there, but Everton's forms turned around. Uh, Man City won six one against Bournemouth. I think Doku scored and got four assists, so um, got more fantasy points than my whole team combined. And uh, fair play to Sheffield United. They uh, left it late, had a hundredth minute winner penalty uh, against Wolves two one. But um, Tomo, just briefly on that one, Gary O'Neill had done by again for another penalty decision. Yeah, a hundred percent. They've been. They were done last week, weren't they, against Newcastle. They've definitely done against Man United on the first game of the season. I think they've had one other as well. Um, but he was surprisingly calm after the game after that. Um, and if you compare and contrast, say, Arteta's reaction, and um, and, our, and our, obviously Wolves have had it way worse than Arsenal. Um, but yeah, absolute howling decision, but... Actually, on that point, Tomo, about him being quite calm, I know he's almost playing that sort of like, I'm completely exasperated. I don't know what else to say. What's the point in wasting my breath on it? Well, Klopp asked for the game to be replayed against Tottenham. He's not doing that because he's going to get a replay. He wants to get rubber the green on future 50-50 decisions. I think there's a bit of that in what Arteta is doing, which is like flying off the handle. So will the referee and VAR make a big decision at the Emirates when a future decision comes out? From a United point of view, I really want Tenar comes out and sort of blasts decisions sometimes, but he's not real like full throttle with it. And I know sometimes people think he come, like managers come across as pricks like doing that and real sort of like egotistical but I think it does work for sides you know like the Garnacho offside it's like well it is offside because the lines have been drawn but Arteta and Pep and Klopp would still argue the toss on that penalty decisions don't get given I think managers need to do that a bit more and be real like stern with it put pressure on the refs to get future decisions nah the whole point the whole reason why sort of the refereeing community have sort of put a flag in the ground this season and said we're sticking up for ourselves now and we're we're booking um we're booking like managers when they're having a go at us we're booking players when they're having a go at us it's because of our uh, the Arteta of this world and Klopp Arteta and Klopp are basically two of the biggest um culprits of it those two they're always having a go at the refs they're always putting pressure on the refs they're, and it's same with the linos and like Klopp had an incident last year where he pulled his hammy where he, because he was so angry and irate at, and nearly pushed a, like a fourth official down. I don't think I don't think you're right there. I think for the betterment of the game, actually, I think the re- the, the managers need to take a look no, at for the betterment of the game completely. But that that's not what managers do. These guys are elite winners. Klopp's not thinking about oh the beautiful game. This is how it should be. We should respect officials like rugby. Like. Yeah, that's probably where the game needs to be. But I'm talking about getting results, getting hard decisions yeah. at the moment. Um, I, I, I actually agree with you there, Murph. And like like you say, Tico, you don't want it for the betterment of the game, but those those winning managers are going to do it. And you alluded to the couple that have gone against Wolves this season. There was the one at Man United, but there was the one against Newcastle last week, wasn't there? Where Chan was a judge to have taken out Wilson maybe in the penalty box. This was almost exactly the same type of decision. 
Gary O'Neill didn't go off the handle. He's very calm about it. And it's given against them again. That's two in two weeks. We're actually seeing consistency with that one. But both of them have gone against Wolves and Gary O'Neill. So a little bit unlucky. But if he comes out last week and says it, it feels sick and, we'll, and, he, and Wolves put a statement out after the game, do they think twice about overturning that one against Sheffield United yesterday? Maybe. Food for four. It is food for four. Um, Lauro, and then, so yeah, that's the Prem wrapped up. But tonight we've got Monday Night Football, uh, a game that's over the years been a, a tasty game, Spurs versus Chelsea. Just want to come to you for initial thoughts on who's going to win that in a game that Paul Merson just can't see past Chelsea in. Sorry? Yes, you've heard that right. Paul Merson <laughs> has said that he cannot see past Chelsea winning that game. He just can't see how uh, Spurs go and get something. To be fair, he's he's a Chelsea fan and Chelsea fans call White Hart Lane three points lane, don't they? So, yeah, no, no, no. Mer- Mercy's a wind up. I'll text him after this. Um, <laughs> he, uh, I think he's wrong. I- I'm the complete opposite to that. I can't see past a Spurs win. Um, but analysis wise, everything we've said before, Spurs free flowing, brilliant football team. Everyone's enjoying it. Chelsea can't score a goal. And uh, I think it will be three point lane, three point lane tonight, but uh, for the home side. Come on, yeah, nothing to add. Completely agree. Uh, just in defence of, well, not even defence of Merson. I'm going to slate him again. Uh, the reason that he said that he couldn't see Spurs getting a result there is that Chelsea are good against sides that come out and attack, like Blackburn did uh, in the week in the uh, <laughs> in the Carabao Cup. So, yeah, some uh, some thoughts gone into it from Merce at least, but. Uh, yeah, I, I'll go full house. Uh, Spurs win, quite comfortable. Um, just to a little look ahead, boys, um, won't go into any depth for any of the games, but um, European football back this week. Uh, Newcastle uh, hosts, uh, no, go to Dortmund. Man City hosts Young Boys. Arsenal hosts Seville. United go to Copenhagen. Brighton go to Ajax. Liverpool go to Toulouse. West Ham host Olympiacos. And Villa host uh, AZ Alkmaar. So, yeah, on Thursday, we will react to um, the Champions League fixed, uh, results and hopefully uh, English sides have, um, have done well. Just briefly before we move on to Championship, I want to touch on the Ballon d'Or. Um, Tomo, I think, is it the eighth one that Messi's won now? Uh, just want to get your thoughts on that as a result, but then also what your thoughts are just on Ballon d'Or as a whole, and then obviously bring Laura in. Um, I don't mind Messi getting a, getting a Ballon d'Or, to be honest. I think if the World Cup had happened in the summer instead of the winter, I think there'd be no gripes and no arguments. Um, but because it happened 10 months ago, everyone's almost forgot how brilliant Messi was at the World Cup and how instrumental he was at obviously leading Argentina um, to that World Cup title. Um, but I can also see an argument for Haaland winning winning it because he was so good in that Man City treble winning team. So look, probably two two people deserve to win it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't argue too much that Messi won it. On the Ballon d'Or itself, I think it's an absolute joke. The ceremony takes about four hours too long. They've got influences knocking about, taking the piss out of players. Um that our I show speed is I show shit basically. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I it show my I'm only 32, but and I've grown up with social media, but I'm just too old for that sort of stuff. Um, to find it remotely funny, um, I feel like I'm like uh 32 going on 82 when I'm talking about stuff like that, but yeah, and but I'm not to be honest, I don't really have that 
too strong sort of feelings either way. Like it is what it is. It's important to some people. It's important to not important to others. Um, yeah, but I, I I can't argue that Messi won. Lauro, do, Tomo just said there about obviously not doesn't seem to be too important to fans. Like, what do you think it's like for a player? Do you think like Harlan's been absolutely gutted or fuming off the back of not getting it, or do you not think it's that deep for them? I don't know about Harlan because he's a robot. I don't think he feels anything, but I'd be fucking fuming because <laughs> I think in the player community, that's probably I don't give a I don't give a shit about the Ballon d'Or, but for a player and for something that's been so dominated dominated by Ronaldo and Messi for the last. 15 years or whatever I think it's quite a big award and um, Messi winning it off the back of Argentina Argentina's World Cup campaign in which they won four games drew twice and lost to Saudi Arabia for that to be deemed successful enough to put Messi at the pinnacle over Haaland who won the treble and must have broken all sorts of goal scoring records I think is a little bit of a disgrace and I'll leave it there yeah, nothing else to add from me either. Um, I'm not a particular fan of it as a award. I don't only, really get to build up yeah, and hype to it either. The only thing I will say is in 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 England we don't sort of see the Ballon d'Or as important at all. But in France, um, where it was um, spawned, and in Spain, and you listen to like Benzema talking last year about it, like it's the most important thing in the eyes of the players, I think. Um, but as an Englishman and an English fan, it doesn't matter one jot, but but I think on the continent it does. I get it in France. I think this, it's become so big in Spain because it's been like the coin for Messi versus Ronaldo, isn't it? Like the ultimate kind of, you know, you can go on certain stats on goals and general what people's opinions are, but the Ballon d'Or has been kind of the... Messi's got that on him so maybe you're right Tomo that people in the Spanish league then see it as the ultimate award to be named in the same breath as those two but um, yeah I just think it's a bit of a nonsense really and Tomo your your point around some of the kind of influences and things like that that are being brought into those sort of awards and, and, and playing a part in it just kind of makes it a complete clown event doesn't it but anyway Boys, we'll move on to the championship action. We'll start with the Pyramid Pod Cup. So uh, Saints scored in the 90 plus third minute to win at Millwall. Uh, Ryan Fraser popping up for them. And I think most of their celebrations were about uh, retaining the cup, uh, which they would have done anyway with a draw. But um, you could see the real elation in their faces for that. Um, another loss for Millwall. And Tom, I think a bit of like news that's broken in the last hour. They've announced a new manager. Yeah, they've hired someone who I've never heard of before. Joe Edwards, but he was the England's under-20s coach. I think he was assistant manager to Frank Lampard um, at Chelsea in his first stint, I believe. So he's he's obviously highly thought of, um, but it's interesting because apparently he plays this like free-flowing, attacking, um, gives youth a chance style football. Um, and then the, he, the other guy who was in contention for that job was Nathan Jones and and people would say that it's probably sort of two ends, two ends of the spectrum there. But just on the game, it was a well-deserved win for Southampton. They've won five out of the last seven now. They're only a point behind Leeds, who obviously got the win against Leicester. Um, but by all metrics, they deserve to win the game. They had um, 16 shots to Millwall's seven, um, eight shots on target compared to Millwall's one. Ryan Fraser getting a bit of a title of super sub because I think he come off the bench against Hull a couple of weeks ago 
and scored a late winner as well. Um, Russell Martin said that he won't be happy with that title, but he says it's tough to get into his team because they've obviously got a good side. I think he come on for that Sulemana, who looks like a good player as well. But it just goes to show that Southampton have kind of got that Premier League-ish quality in their squad if they're bringing on Ryan Frazier. Um, and it made, it made a difference in the end. Yeah, can I just say on Russell Martin as well, I said at the start of the season in our predictions, I, I worried about him because I thought quite early on he was going to run into a time where the results were going to be difficult because he's trying to implement a very particular set of um, philosophies within the team. And it was just going to be whether Southampton could stick with him and give him the chance to carry on after appointing him, or whether we could turn it around quickly enough after those results to go back in the other uh, direction and, and get a Northern League trajectory again. And it's been the latter. He had, I think he lost three or four in a row. Then they beat us, and I don't think they've lost since, and they've won most of them. So fair play to Russell Martin, and you're right, Southampton, the point behind Leeds. Great season, and a real shake-up in the top four with Ipswich as well. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, we'll come on to, to those other results in a bit up that top of the table. But um, big win for Saints. There's also a interview that apparently he's done, Tomo, um, which has been got over the over the weekend or done in the last week, which has gone down really well. It's it's with the time, so it's behind a paywall. So I need to try and get hold of it. But apparently he speaks really like candidly and openly about some stuff that happened in his childhood with his parents and gambling addiction and things like that. And apparently he comes across really, really well, Russell Martin. So um, sometimes going and being like sort of open and honest like that sometimes uh, gets people behind you a bit. So that might be a bit of a uh, a masterstroke for Southampton and, and people getting behind him and the team. So yeah, West Brom up next for them. They'll be looking to keep the cup and uh, stretch that games to, to three. And then I guess the, just an outlook for the cup championship sides can't be too far off Floro from coming into the FA cup. Will that be round three that they'll come in with the Prem side? So you might see the cup jump about the, the yeah, league. Round three, round three is normally the weekends directly after new year. So we've got round two is early December and then round three, early Jan. Yeah. Happy day. So we'll have to, well, whichever championship sides got it, uh, then we will have to see um, see who they get in the FA Cup for potential that jumping around the leagues. Um, so other results from the uh, championship. So we'll come on to Ipswich that Loro uh, mentioned who dropped points at the top. But another side uh, that dropped points at the top were Leicester, uh, lost 1-0 at home to Leeds. I think we all watched it. Loro, I'll come to you for insight on it. But I must say, highly impressed with Leeds and the shift they put in uh, at Leicester. The best implementation of a game plan I have ever seen in my life. Bar none. And honestly, the, I'm not an expert in the um, specifics of pressing football and pr triggers in pressing and stuff like that. But if someone who did know what they were talking about watched that, I'm pretty sure we would have got an A star because it was absolutely unbelievable how high we pressed and how long we managed to keep that press going during the game, right up until the closing stages, until probably after we scored and then sat a little bit deeper. And the game, I thought, would have been 3 or 4-0 had it not been for Leicester having amazing defenders. And in particular, Ricardo Pereira and James Justin were unbelievable because there was a few times where Somerville got in, Rutter got in, Pira got in, and they managed to somehow get back or get the body between the, the goal and the ball and things like that. I actually thought Leicester were okay. Um, but when you you talk about Mavadidi, who's having an amazing season on their left wing, got 
pocketed really a lot of the time by young Archie Gray, 17 years old, central midfielder playing at right back. Little thing, Glenn Kamara, by the way, who we've not really mentioned, signed him in the summer from Rangers, was dynamite in midfield within Ethan Ampadu, who's been brilliant all season. Joe Rodon, for me, best centre-back in the league. And right at the end, don't often give him credit, Elan Mesley pulls out a world-class save to deny Leicester um, a point. So I, I, I can't remember a game where... Every single player for me was an eight or a nine or a 10 out of 10 for Leeds. And to do it away at Leicester, who have been the best championship side in the last 15 games that we've seen in a long, long time, was so, so impressive. And again, it's mainly down to one man and his name's Daniel Farker. Yeah, it was it was a really good game of football, wasn't it? I was I was I was megally impressed with both of them. I actually thought um the game played out kind of exactly how we thought it would when we spoke about it on Thursday. Um, because I, I thought Leicester would dominate the ball. They had 66% possession. Um, but like you say, Lauro, Leeds, their game plan worked perfectly. Um, they had 1.3 XG compared to Leicester's 0.8. So obviously had the better of the chances. Six shots on target compared to Leicester's one. Um, an example of how good that game was was this uh 30 second moment. I don't know if it was a I want to say it was the first half, but I'm not 100% sure. It was when that um, Abdul Fatuwu um, yeah. cut inside and blasts one and it hit the bar. And then yeah. within about 10 seconds, Somerville had the ball in, in the Leicester um, box. And, he, and it could have been a pen. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought, Do you know what? It's an unbelievable game of football. Yeah. Um, but you're right, to, you're right to pick out and point out um, Meslier because he's had a lot of stick, hasn't he? especially last season when you guys were in the Prem. And I thought that save was unbelievable. Um, but really impressive game of football. And I'll just sort of compare compare and contrast. What would I rather watch, Leeds versus Leicester or Sheffield United versus Luton? Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like apples yeah. and oranges. Yeah. That, those, those championship games, they're just amazing. They? EFL televised games often are like cameras there, goals, corners, cards... And obviously, you know what the playoff season's like when you get to that. So you just enjoy watching games like that, don't you, over a, a bit of a dead cagey Prem game. Uh, but yeah, great result for Leeds. We spoke about, didn't we, their need for that little point gap that was uh, that was forming to just be eroded a little bit and hopefully a little chink in Leicester's armour and maybe a drop in confidence and form for them just to open that sort of title race back up. The other side who were in the early uh, lead in the title was Ipswich. And uh, I think, Laura and I were both stunned, Tomo, when you picked Rooney's Birmingham uh, to beat them at three to one in the treble. But for a very long time, it looked like Birmingham were going to get it done, two nil up. But a couple of late uh, goals from I think Harness at Ipswich, and they drew two all. Yeah, yeah. I just thought the, I've been listening to and reading some of Rooney's comments after the game, and I I think he's gradually been getting more and more impressed with them, and. Um, yeah, they had, they made a flying start to that game, and that Bakuna, um, who returned to the starting lineup, looked dangerous. When you look, watch the highlights, he was involved in absolutely everything that Birmingham did, um, and they obviously got the goals. Uh, Jay Stansfield, good turn, good 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 strike, and obviously we've got a bit of an affinity with him because obviously he's the son of Adam Stansfield, um, who is the former Yeovil striker who sadly, I think, passed away at a really young age. Um, but yeah, but do you know what? The, the, I thought that game was quite ironic because Birmingham brought in Rooney to play this no-fear attacking football 
um, basically that John Eustace wasn't able to play. But if you look at the stats, um, and I don't know whether it's because they got the early goal, and I guess the game state changes how you play and affects how you play, but they only had 32% possession. Um, their XG was way down on Ipswiches. Um, but yeah, and and to be honest, it was a good game of football. And if I was Kieran McKenna, I wouldn't be worried too much. It just shows that they've got a lot of fight and spirit. And um, and in terms of sort of their squad depth, they had Dane Scarlett come off the bench to um, to link up with Harness for the first goal. Um, and obviously Harness, who come off the bench, scored both goals. So yeah, positive point, I'd say, all round. Yeah, I agree with that. You touched on it then. I thought that was a, a really good point for Ipswich because when you're up there and you want to win every week, if you find yourself two goals down away from home, just do everything you can to come away with something and then you can build on it at home next week. And that's a sign of a really good team. It's all right blowing teams away and scoring loads every week. But with, I think, 12 minutes to go, 2-0 down to come from behind and salvage something, um, the Ipswich end were pure limbs and it was good to see in... Yeah, another another um, feather in the cap of, of Kieran McKenna, who's doing a wonderful job and making it hell of a spicy at the top of that league. It's um, just on your point, Tomo, about uh, Rooney brought in to play this attacking football. And we touched on um, earlier in the pod about another manager to, to play that kind of brand of football. I think it might have been Russell Martin we said about or someone like that. But um, do you, I don't know if you. I know you two both listen to Talksport. Have you heard anything on John Terry about his management interviews that he's been having? It was on um, White and Jordan, uh, and basically John Terry was saying that he's interviewed for like Premier League clubs, he's interviewed for Championship clubs, and then he went to two League One clubs and had interviews. And he said that one of the interviews he had, like the he was sat at the other side of the table, and the guy, the chairman, was like, "Oh, um, we want to play like Man City." It's like everyone now has this thing, don't they, about their style of play, about like playing out from the back and this attacking free-flowing football um, and things like that. And it, it's it's scary how often you now see sides who just think that that's the right thing to do, playing out from the back, get caught in possession by their keeper or their midfielder that's not comfortable with his back to go, who's meant to turn on it, just having it pumped into his feet and losing it. And uh, yeah, I think John Terry said he was sat there a bit like, knows that he's ready for an opportunity in League One, but sat there with a chairman saying to him, oh, yeah, we want to play like Man City. Uh, and it's just just not that viable. So sometimes you don't need to be attacking front foot football, does it, to get results? And obviously but, you want to be attacking in on the front foot. You know, you're not but, getting anything from that. But in the chairman's defences, and if you look at what Birmingham are doing, they're, they're trying to build a brand and put bums on seats. And... They like the best way to put bums on seats and to fill stadiums is to play attacking football. I think win games. Well, I know, yeah, I know, but play attacking football that wins games. Yeovil's a prime example of that, isn't it, Laurie? Where like Yeovil's style of football sometimes has been like under Cooper has been like, oh, this is this this ain't great football. This ain't front foot attacking football. But suddenly you win a certain amount of games in a row and the crowds start to go up, don't they? Yeah. No, no, I agree with you, Beth. And like Tigo just said there, you want attacking football that wins games. That is AKA Man City, because they're the only one of the only teams in the country that can do it, and maybe a couple of others at the top of their divisions. Um, but just I did hear a little bit of that, and I did also hear that John Terry had an interview at Newcastle. And I'm not sure yeah. if they were expecting John, but that did make me laugh as the former Villa 
assistant manager turned up thinking he was the one to lead the ship forward for the Saudis and Newcastle would take them from the relegation zone to the Champions League. That must have been an interesting one. And apparently, uh, <laughs> John fluffed his lines a little bit at that one and couldn't quite believe the um, the expectations in his PowerPoint presentation weren't quite met. So, unlucky John, and it'll be good to see him in football, but I think somewhere in, in League One is probably the level. Yeah, I think I think these like ex players who are at the top of the game need to go and do it in League One, League Two. And as we touched on last time with Lampard, can you then lead a side of players who are way worse in regards to quality to what you are and get them bought into some sort of ethos style of play and you be accepting of their their sort of standards? So um be interesting to see. Just to touch on another game, um, Tomo, you highlighted as well, Plymouth Real with Borough. I think uh Bally Mumba and Morgan Whitaker both scored who we've touched on before for them, but two sides that we've both spoke on there, Plymouth and Middlesbrough at the pod in length. But it looked like Michael Carrick's side were going to get all three points, but uh Plymouth managed to get a late equaliser. Yeah, a bit of a mad game, really. Um, <clears throat> Borough went 1-0 up, then 2-1 down, then 3-2 up again. And then they were obviously pegged back at the end, um, thanks to, a, I would call it, a bit of a lucky um, equaliser. Um, I think it was Forrest Whitaker, or Morgan Whitaker. I think Forrest Whitaker's the uh, the Oscar-winning actor, isn't he? Not Morgan. <laughs> yeah, if he, if he scored a late equaliser for Plymouth... <laughs> Yeah. Boris Whitaker's good in the air by all accounts. <laughs> yeah, Morgan Whitaker sort of curled in this left-footed cross, cross come shot, free kick, and it sort of went in um, after everyone left it. But yeah, when you look at the stats of that game, Middlesbrough and the highlights, Middlesbrough should have won. Really, they had they had an next year three point three compared to Plymouth's one. They had nineteen shots compared to Plymouth's ten, and ten shots on target compared to Plymouth's five. So. Carrick will be disappointed. Um, I think he, in his post-match interview, he, he had a pop-up, um, a couple of decisions in that game as well. But um, good result for Plymouth, obviously. Yeah. Um, at the wrong side of all the stats and et cetera, et cetera. And you, you come away with a draw after being twice, um, having twice come from behind. Fair play to them. I thought they were doing a little bit better than what they were, actually, Plymouth. I know it's just a sign of the league that a win probably catapults them back up, but they're down in 19th now. Um, I guess probably a quite a small club for championship uh, standards now. But yeah, probably an important point for them, actually. Otherwise, they'd have been down level on points to Coventry and Huddersfield. Um, just another bit of manager news in the championship. Lauro, Liam Manning, I think it is, has gone to Bristol City. He was at Oxford. I know you've been impressed with Oxford. Um this season so far. So just a bit of information on him and that decision for Bristol City. Yeah, another one of these sort of on-the-grass managers in the Russell Martin mould. So Liam Manning was the guy that replaced Russell Martin at MK Dons a couple of years ago. And MK Dons is another team that are trying to play an attractive brand. Bristol City are obviously trying to go in that direction now. But last summer, or the summer before, whenever it was, Liam Manning was at um, MK Dons, having guided them to the playoffs. And they lost... I think in the playoff semi-finals at the time and his stock was incredibly high and I think he got offered the QPR job in the championship and turned it down in favour of staying with MK Dons and building on the project. Now, he stayed with MK Dons, lost a couple of games, they were lurking around the bottom of League One and they ended up sacking him. So, Fast forward a year, he's taken over Oxford, he's kept them up last year, he's had a really good start to the season playing really good football. And now fans are coming out and saying, why would Liam Manning leave Oxford to go to Bristol City when he's got him playing such good football and he might 
get them promoted? Well, the answer to that is probably that Liam Manning tried to be loyal to MK Dons before, and at the first sign of a bad run of form, they got rid of him when his stock was high, and he could have been going to QPR in the summer. So this time he's probably thinking, I've got a championship gig here at Bristol City, which is a big club. The stadium's really, really nice. I've spoke about that before. It's geared up for the Premier League. And he's probably thinking to himself, I've got a better chance of going on and achieving probably my ambition with Bristol City than I have with Oxford, where there's probably some some sort of ceiling. So I don't blame him for going. But managerial-wise, uh, you know, he's a, a little bit of a Russell Martin type, likes playing possession-based football, and he's very much a coach rather than a manager. And on that as well, Bristol City are 11th, right? They're four points off the playoff. So if he backs himself, which obviously he does with how he's been doing um, uh, at Oxford, he might be thinking I could be a prem manager next season. Exactly. The games exactly. that they, you know, they've they've lost three of their last six, but they also won three of their last six. And the games they lost were against Cardiff in a, a derby game where Cardiff are doing well. 1-0 to Ipswich, who are right near the top, and 2-1 against Leeds. So, yeah. you know, no disgrace in any of those results, really. And it makes you wonder, Berth, doesn't it? being four points off the playoffs in 11th place, Bristol City, why on earth are they sacking Nigel Pearson? Yeah. But there we go. And when when they did that, and then you saw, I think, Frank Lampard linked with it, you kind of wondered yeah. if it was a similar decision to that Birmingham one, where it's the like, really yeah, big, I know Nigel Pearson's a really experienced manager, but, you know, Lampard being a, a big kind of uh, name. Um, but now they've gone and got someone from League One. Like, looks like I'm sure he's a great manager, and I'm sure he's got a real high ceiling of where he can go to. But Nigel Pearson not even doing that bad a job. And they went and got all three against Sheffield Wednesday, and suddenly things look rosy again. So odd decision. Um, just for not on the Championship boys, but another piece of managerial news uh, I've seen as well, Lauro. Uh, Graham Alexander's gone to Bradford. So uh, he was ex Salford, wasn't he? And then where, where was? He was at MK Dons this yeah, season. He's right. been sacked. Um, I think probably the complete opposite to what we've just spoken about. MK Dons are one of those teams that want to play. They, they're probably interviewing their managers going, we want to play like Man City. And Graham Alexander is much more of your pragmatic mould of manager. Um, not to sort of bullpen in with Sam Allardyce and Neil Warnock, but of that kind of degree. And I think he'll probably suit Bradford a little bit more. You know, one of these Northern clubs that will probably be happy with winning rather than playing um, whatever the latest brand of football is at the time. So I think that's the better fit for him. But obviously, relieved of his duties at Salford, relieved of his duties quite early at MK Dons. He's due a big one. So if he's got the Bradford job, um, I think that's a good job for him, but one he needs to perform in now. Yeah, and they they host uh, Barrow um, at the weekend, and I, I sorry I can't remember where it is, but I've just seen that their manager at Barrow is being linked with somewhere as well for a manager job. Yeah, well, he's really good. Pete, Pete World at Barrow was at Halifax before, and he did an absolutely fantastic job. And uh, yeah, taking over at Barrow, and they're one of those clubs that you look at and you think, how on earth are they doing anything in League Two? And how on earth did they win the how on earth did they win the National League a couple of years ago as well? Because before that you'd have seen them as like a Timport Sunday team league. But uh yeah, obviously if you do a good job at these smaller clubs, then you can work your way at the leagues and maybe that's something John Terry can uh, look to do rather than going in at Newcastle. Indeed. Um so yeah, loads of managerial changes on a weekly basis now, but we will uh keep on top of that. Um, FA Cup boys, so a few upsets that happened. Um, crazy 11 goal game uh, at Swindon, Swindon four, Oldershot seven. Obviously, being my place of birth and a uh, 
as Aldershot fan, um, you can imagine my delight when they were seven nil up away at Swindon. Um, but yeah, great result for them. Laura, a game we touched on um before very briefly was Chesterfield on the last pod was Chesterfield versus Portsmouth, top of National League versus top of League One. Um, and Chesterfield came out on top. I didn't get to watch the game. Did Portsmouth rest players? Did Chesterfield nick a win? What was the game like? Um, I thought Chesterfield could have won it three or four nil. And no, I don't think they did, but I don't know what Portsmouth's best starting eleven is, but you know, they're Colby Bishop up front. Um, you know, most of the players that were playing are ones that you hear of week in, week out for Portsmouth. I think they played the best team. And uh yeah, they were just that was Portsmouth haven't lost a game since March, by the way. And they've got to check and their first one is against National League Chesterfield, who are two leagues below. So Do you know what's mental obviously... about that Portsmouth? They're obviously they're like you say, they're top of League One cruising, yeah. obviously seem to win every week. But I was listening to it might have been Talk Sport or Radio Five Live, and the fans were calling in basically not happy because they keep going behind in games and then having to come back. And <clears throat> I think was it last week or the week before they went two 0 down against Reading, yeah. ended up winning three two, and the basically the fans are saying sooner or later you get found out, and clearly. They got found out against Chesterfield, a team two divisions below. Yeah, obviously very, very harsh for a club that hasn't lost a game since March. Mental, um, yes, mental. Maybe stemming from the, their manager, John Massinho, this is his first gig. He was a centre midfielder for Oxford last season and then randomly got the gig at Portsmouth. And I think probably a lot of them went in maybe with a little bit of a, a worried attitude, thinking, blimey. You know, we've gone from like the Cowleys or whoever was there after them to John Massinho. What's going to happen here? But... You can't really knock him being top of the league, can you? And if I was them, I wouldn't give a shit about the FA Cup. I just want to get to the championship. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. True. And if, if the club's financially stable, you don't even really need that big glamorous tie either for the finances. So, yeah, I think he'll have... Uh, he'll probably go in on the players for losing to non-league opposition, but be thinking one less uh, fixture to worry about and let, let's get up to the championship. Uh Tomo, so Slough won, Grimsby won. Um, 35-year-old uh, player manager scored a free kick. And I just want to ask you a question. 35-year-old bolding centre mid, whipping in a free kick. Does it give you any thoughts to get back out there? <laughs> yeah, I did. To be fair, that sounds a touch harsh on him, but I did see that he tweeted that out this morning, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That he was bolding. Yeah, great moment. Great moment. I, I assumed because he was player manager that it was a sort of late on in the game, um, but actually he started himself. <laughs> so if he's starting himself and taking free kicks, he's definitely having himself, isn't he? Uh, uh, but yeah, fair play. It was a great goal. Great. Are you talking about Scott Davies there? Yeah. The Slough player manager? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ex-Yeovil, for any of our YTFC fans that um, have got a BDI, you may remember his four-game stint back in 2010 on loan from Reading. I knew he'd go on to great things. <laughs> yeah, and player manager of Slough is that. But yeah, uh, I think Grimsby scored late, didn't they? Um, but yeah, replay for them. Good moment in the FA Cup. Um, another, up, well, I guess it is an upset now with the league, um, maybe not for Yeovil fans, is Yeovil free. Uh, Gateshead two and Laura Yeovil were three nil up and in control of that game. Um, so scoreline might flatter Gateshead a bit, but just another win for Yeovil and next round of the cup. Yeah, and I think it. This is the this is the most um, 
bizarre thing that I can show you to illustrate how good Yeovil are at the moment. We are going into our... We've won the 10 previous before Saturday, going into Gateshead, a game that is probably winnable at home against a side who have lost their manager in a, in a little bit of shit form. And what do Yeovil do? They drop or they rest our best player. How cocky is that? We're going in against Gateshead, who are a good side in the league above, and we've rested our best player in Jordan Young, and we're still 3-0 up after about 70 minutes. Just shows how good we are at the moment. Then they get a dodgy penalty, and then one goes in in the 90-something minute, a little bit of a scramble. But 3-2 flat at the Gateshead. We deserve to win the game. I felt sorry for their fans that came down, and Yeovil won 11 in a row now. And tomorrow, go to Plainmore, the home of Torquay United, who at the start of the season, we thought would be our main challengers for the league. They probably still will be, but they are seven po- seven points behind us and have played a game more at the moment, but I'm expecting a tricky fixture there. So, And I'm going. So looking forward to an even at the seaside and hopefully a 12th win in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Keepers, well, we'll be back Thursday where you can tell us all about hopefully Yeovil uh, winning again. And just on the FA Cup, just to round up, uh, next round uh, got Wrexham away, haven't we? Which last year would have been a league game, albeit two sides at different ends of the table. But Yeovil will go there probably now as seeing them as a, a bit of a glamour tie with with their uh, documentary and their fame and their players and think that maybe they can go and spring a surprise up there as well. Yeah, well, since Ryan Reynolds and um, the other geezer took over, Yeovil were the only team to win at Wrexham in the league before they went up to League Two in two years. Josh Johnson scored a goal there. And before that, when we had Reese Murphy the first time, he scored a hat-trick up at the race course. So we've actually got some good memories, albeit not last year, where they actually relegated us um, back in March or April, whenever it was. I'm expecting a decent game, though. I think, looking at Twitter, Wrexham fans think that's a bit of a walkover because they see us as a National League self team, which, of course, on paper we are. But we're playing like a top-end National League team. So I think it'll be a, a very, very good game. And uh, quite an open one. You know what Wrexham are like? They they like a 5-4, don't they? Or a game like that. And we've got lots of good attacking players and it won't be an easy day for them. I'm hoping that's going to be on TV as well. I think it might be probably one of the biggest pools TV viewership-wise left uh, in the competition at this stage. So, yeah, early December that one. And uh, looking forward to it. I think it's a good time. And Tomo, where will your allegiance be? Being a documentary fan of Wrexham, but a uh, a Glover at heart. You You want the Glovers to win there? Yeah, the T the T Gal Derby. I thought you were gonna <laughs> the name. <laughs> yeah, now nah, obviously, yeah, Glovers win. Yeah, and just a quick point that a complete alternative universe where Ryan Reynolds is counterpart owner Martin Hellier go against each other in a FA Cup game. <laughs> just crazy, but that would is... be some glass of wine in the uh, in the boardroom. <laughs> yeah. after, won't it? <laughs> it really will. So, yeah, um, boys, that's all we got time for today. We'll obviously be back on Thursday. Um, we'll have a look at the Champs League games, uh, maybe preview a bit of the Europa action and also the weekend action uh, coming up. But a pleasure as always and have a great week. Cheers, boys. Cheers, boys. One, two, three.